Well, I think we have to reach uh, the younger generation. We've got to stop sending our children and grandchildren into these re-education camps with drag queen story time, transgenderism, critical race theory, America's a terrible country. This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, May 9th. I'm Virginia Allen. And that was famed syndicated columnist Cal Thomas discussing what he has seen in his 50 years of reporting on America and where we stand as a nation today. Thomas's new book, A Watchman in the Night, What I've Seen Over 50 Years Reporting on America, is out wherever books are sold today. Mr. Thomas is sitting down with me on the Daily Signal podcast today to explain some of the key moments that he has witnessed and documented in the last 50 years and who some of the most influential people have been within the past several decades in America's story. Stay tuned for my conversation with Cal Thomas after this. For over 35 years, the Heritage Foundation Job Bank has been helping conservatives at all professional levels find employment in key positions in Washington, D.C. and across the country. We can help you connect with positions in the administration, on Capitol Hill, in public policy organizations, and in the private sector. To learn more about the Heritage Foundation Job Bank, go to heritage.org job bank. It is my distinct privilege today to welcome to the show a man that really needs no introduction, but is known to many of our listeners for his brilliant analysis, his syndicated columns. He's authored now 14 books. Cal Thomas is here with us today. Well, thank you, Virginia, for not saying you need to do an introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm thrilled that today we get to talk about your latest book, A Watchman in the Night, and this recounts what you've seen over the past 50 years in the journalism field. And I was really interested to learn that you've been writing, you've been in the field of journalism since you were 16 years old. What were you writing about at the age of 16? Well, when I was 16, I was a copy boy. No, I was a, uh, an announcer, a disc jockey at a suburban Maryland radio station just outside of Washington. So I really didn't get started in journalism until a couple of years later Mm. when I got a job as a copy boy at the NBC News division here in Washington. And that uh, interested me a lot because I was surrounded by really great journalists. These people had come from wire services and newspapers and really knew how to write. They wrote all their own stuff. I was in charge of filing their scripts, and that was kind of a free writing class for me. So they were my mentors. And later I became a reporter. And then in 1984, a a newspaper columnist. And it's been a great career. I think the best part of it is the people you get to meet from all walks Hmm. of life. I don't know any other uh, job other than maybe president (laughs) uh, (laughs) where you get to meet people from such diverse backgrounds and uh, professions. Well, 50 years is a long time in any career. (laughs) Did you ever consider getting out of journalism, doing something totally different? Not really. Actually, I started out, I wanted to be in show business. uh, Musical comedy was my favorite uh, show business expression and still is. Now the news has become show business, so I've arrived. (laughs) Well, there you go. Well, your, your Christian faith, I know, plays a huge role in your writing. And, you know, of course, in journalism, 
our worldview comes through no matter what. And of course, when when you're writing columns, syndicated pieces, that worldview is supposed to come through. How does your own faith influence the way that you write and even maybe the subjects that you choose to write about? Well, the one thing I've learned over the years, and certainly as a Christian, is that human nature never changes. Mm -hmm. So you can elect this candidate or that candidate. You can be for this party or that party. And while there are certain uh, benefits to one party and one candidate over another, uh, the basic uh, flaw of all humanity is our fallen human nature. So uh, I'm reminded of what King David said when he was king over Israel, put not your trust in princes and kings or in mortal flesh that cannot save. And uh, I think while there are certainly good programs and ideas that I support from the economy to human relationships to foreign policy, uh, the fact is that no political leader is going to be able to solve the real problem, which is deep in the human heart of every individual. So I don't claim that everything I write is somehow biblical or the words of God, but I do begin with a standard of right and wrong, good and evil, and things that have worked and things that haven't. Mm. And I wrote a previous book called What Works, and the basic point of it was if uh, something, a program, is working and can't be done better by the private sector at a lower cost, then we keep it. And if the opposite is true, then we get rid of it. Remember Ronald Reagan's great line that the only proof of eternal life in Washington is a government program, <laughs> and it's true. So in business, you do that. If something isn't working, a sales strategy, you try another strategy. But in government, things just keep on going and going and going. The debt increases, $31.4 trillion as of today, and nobody wants to cut even the rate of spending increase. So I start with a standard, looking back in the past, not living in it, but seeing what worked in the past. We're not the first generation to ever walk the earth. We have a history. We can see what worked and what didn't in the past. We don't have to repeat history over and over again, but sadly, too many of us do. As a watchman here in America, you've seen many things unfold over the decades. Are there maybe two or, or three events or moments in the past 50 years in America's history that you would point to as really critical, as, as points that for better or worse have defined where, where we are, where we're going as a country, and have really influenced our trajectory. Yeah, I think uh, the 60s, of course, the 1960s, uh, continue to reverberate. You had the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert Kennedy. You had uh, the Vietnam War protests. Then you had Watergate and Nixon. And into all of these was created a certain level of cynicism about institutions, about politics, about leadership that I think continues to reverberate sadly today. You see the trust in the media at an all-time low down along the level of Congress. Trust in institutions has uh, faded significantly. So I think the 60s was a, uh, a major impact on this country that uh, still reverberates today. And you mentioned a uh, lack of trust in, in the media. I, I do think a lot of that can be founded. There's... Uh, a lot of information out there that um, I think folks, when when they look at uh, so many of the large media corporations, you know, they've they've lost trust in them. They've lost faith, as you said. Uh, how how do you think media can go about, for one, kind of restoring that trust with the common man? 
how journalists can do that. Um, and where do you yourself get your news? Well, first of all, I think that uh, any other industry that denies uh, what major consumers or potential consumers think is writing its own death knell. Hmm. This is the only profession I'm aware of that doesn't care where large numbers of Americans, conservatives, Christians, patriots, people who served in the military, uh, think. And the only response they have to that is not to read their newspapers and not to watch their TV channels. You mm -hmm. see ratings down, except when a big event happens. You see newspaper readership down, especially among the young. And I think a, a free and strong press is essential to a constitutional republic. It's the only profession mentioned in the Constitution, in the First Amendment. And even the people who wrote the Constitution were often attacked by the press, but they understood that in a free society, a free press was uh, extraordinary. I get my sources through the usual places. I mean, I read four or five newspapers a day, uh, Wall Street Journal and uh, for intellectual depth and New York Post for fun and their headlines. <laughs> but the New York Post has become a, a better real newspaper than the New York Times and Washington Post. They uncover the Hunter Biden laptop thing. They've done a lot of other uh, stories that the major media cover up. As a friend of mine says, uh, the great power of the media is the power to ignore the stories they don't cover. Look at the border and how the mainstream media has basically ignored this for months. And now we have the end of uh, Title 42 coming up and probably tens of thousands, maybe, maybe even more than before, pouring over our border. Uh, they, they just have not paid attention to it. They're going to be forced to now. What the political impact uh, of that will be is anybody's guess. Yeah. Well, you talk about the division in our country and, and how we are very splintered as a nation right now. And yet you have found a way over the years <laughs> to befriend uh, those who don't necessarily agree with you, those on the opposite side mm -hmm. of the aisle. You are a conservative yourself. Mm -hmm. How have you done that, and why has that been such a priority for you, that you want to make sure you're maintaining relationships with people that don't think like you think? Jesus died with, dined with uh, Republicans and sinners. Oh, excuse me, that was publicans. <laughs> uh, those are the early Democrats. But uh, I don't see people on the other side. Mm -hmm. I see them as my fellow Americans. Uh, I see them, many of them, as my friends. Those who are writers, uh, like myself, who are very good, I respect and admire their work. Uh, Maureen Dowd of the New York Times is one of my favorites, not only because she's Irish and I love Ireland and I used to have a place there, but, uh, you know, it's amazing when you don't name call and when you don't treat other Americans as enemies, you open up the possibility of relationships which allow for you to get a hearing for your ideas while you're listening to them and how they came to their point of view. Uh, uh, you know, Lincoln in his second inaugural address said we should not see ourselves as enemies. And this was after the, the near the end of the Civil War where, where more people, more Americans have been killed and killing each other than any other time in our history. Mm -hmm. And if he could say something like that, why can't we say something like that? Yeah. The answer is that you make money off division. You get TV ratings off division. And, uh, you know, you get the idea of a host and two guests, and one guest says to the other, you're ruining America. And the other one responds, no, you're ruining America. Well, you're a secular humanist. Well, you're a Bible-thumping bigot. And the host says, and we'll be back with more civil discussion after these messages. Well, <laughs> real people don't communicate like that. Yeah. You don't throw open your window in the morning and shout to your neighbor of a different party, hey, you no-good slob, what are you going to do to ruin America today? You know, you wouldn't be living in the neighborhood in peace and 
security very long. Yeah. So, but there, you know, the networks and uh, certain other members of the media have an interest in keeping us divided because they think it makes ratings. Mm -hmm. That's why you never see any solutions to problems. Hmm. You only have people on issuing their rhetorical talking points. Nothing's ever solved. So where does that leave us as a country? Because uh, <laughs> we know that uh, with those increased ratings flows money, and money often drives uh, the conversation, unfortunately, even in journalism. So what's the path forward? Well, I think we have to reach uh, the younger generation. And I have always believed, uh, especially in recent years, that we've got to stop sending our children and grandchildren into these re-education camps with drag queen story time, uh, transgenderism, critical race theory, America's a terrible country. And we need to put them in schools where they're taught the real history of America, the values that help build and sustain this country. Uh, patriotism, respect for parents, all of these things. They were part of something called the McGuffey Readers over a century ago that were supplements in our public schools that taught all of these things and reinforced what was being taught and modeled in the home and the churches. But now we don't have that. We have a kind of secular progressivism. And so you have to rescue the next generation. You're not going to do much for those who are now adults, but the next generation you can rescue by not sending them into these schools and universities, which teach values, ideas, and history that are counter to what a lot of Americans believe. Mm. Now, in, in speaking about the problems that we're seeing in the nation today, some of your recent columns have uh, been commentaries, critiques of cities, some of America's major cities like mm. Chicago, New York, where we've seen crime, increased homelessness. How did those cities get to that place. You've been reporting, following for so much of your career what goes on in America's major cities. What's unfolded? Well, they're all run by uh, liberal Democrats, for one thing. And they are more interested in appealing to a certain demographic than they are in solving the prime uh, problems, as you say, of crime and homelessness. Uh, it, the thing that amazes me is that people continue to vote for these candidates and these elected officials. They, they worry about crime in their neighborhoods, but they vote for mayors who want to defund or in some cases eliminate the police. Well, why would you do this? They keep voting for school board members who preside over failing public schools, especially in minority communities, and yet they say they want their child to have a good education. Why would you do that? So I think, you know, when, when Trump spoke to a, a largely African-American group in 2016, he, he said, why are you still voting for these people? Your schools are a mess. Your cities are a mess. What have they done for you in the last 40 years? It's a great question. And I think uh, Republicans and conservatives need to continue to put the Democrats on defense for what they've done in our cities. It's disgusting. Uh, Oregon, is, uh, the whole state is messed up. San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Nordstrom has just announced the closing of two of its stores because it can't uh, make a profit anymore with all the looting. Same with Walgreens and, and, and these other places. But they're all Democrat-run cities. And if you're going to keep voting for these people, you're going to get the same thing. It's one of the reasons so many people are moving out. And it's hard to get U-Hauls now because they're all taken up. <laughs> You know, I, I imagine that as you follow all of these events, uh, it can feel a little depressing. And it is a little bit depressing when we look at what's going on in the country. And yet you seem to genuinely enjoy what you do, Mr. Thomas. And, uh -huh. and you inject a lot of humor 
into your writing. Why do you think that's so important? To well, use as Mary your... Poppins said, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, right? <laughs> and there are a lot of things to laugh about. I mean, the stupidity and the silliness of things, hmm. the old definition of insanity, uh, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different outcomes. Yeah. But uh, I, you know, I, I'm basically a frustrated performer. I wanted to go into show business early on in my career. And uh, I think that uh, laughing at things, ridicule, is a great way sometimes to make a political point mm. uh, without labeling or demeaning another person. Mm -hmm. So usually I ask, well, how's that policy working out for you? You know, it's not doing too good. You say you care about the poor. There are just as many poor now as there were when the Lyndon Johnson's Great Society began. Mm -hmm. So how's that working out for you? So I try to hold the other side, if you will, here's using a phrase I say I try not to use, but the people with a different point of view accountable for the uh, standards that, or lack of standards that they've set for themselves. Sure. Now, I, I asked you earlier if there was a major event in American history that mm. you thought was um, very influential that really shaped where we are today, and you said the 1960s. Uh, what about a person or, or two that you would point to, a man or a woman, uh, maybe they have been a known leader in America, maybe not, who's really uh, shaped our, our country in the last 50 years. Well, the easy default answer, of course, is Ronald Reagan, who stood up to the Soviet Union and the, and the left uh, when he put Pershing missiles into Eastern Europe. Uh, the left screamed and yelled that he was going to launch nuclear war. Instead, uh, it just did the opposite. It made, made Gorbachev uh, stand down and uh, it uh, brought down the Berlin Wall and opened up Eastern Europe to the freedom that it enjoys today. We still have Putin in the, in the former Soviet Union, who is as big a threat as some of the Soviet leaders were. But uh, still, it's opened up opportunities for people to grasp. So I think, uh, you know, re while Reagan was significant, I think, uh, you know, John Kennedy in his own way, because he got young people interested in politics and mm -hmm. government again, uh, I think, uh, you know, Bush 43, who uh, did a great job after 9-11. I think we stayed in Afghanistan too long and pulled out too precipitously before some stability was established. But uh, there, there have been, uh, you know, other good leaders. I thought Calvin Coolidge, uh, named after his two sons, our 30th president, uh, had some uh, great ideas. He left with a balanced budget. And interestingly, Bill Clinton, of all people, hmm. had a balanced budget twice Whoever talks about balancing the budget anymore? Wow. So, you know, leaders come and go. And uh, I think, you know, Kennedy's great line in his inaugural speech has been lost in our time. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Mm -hmm. And I would simply ask, what could you do for yourself that is better than anything government can do? I see government as a last resort, but the politicians have made it a first resource. And that's the reason we have such a huge debt now. People turn to government first instead of look to themselves. So in your book, uh, you talk about America's past, you talk about where we are today, but you also talk about our future. So as the Watchman, looking out, where do you see us headed? Well, I chose the title of Watchman in the Night uh, from an Old Testament verse when the ancient Israelites used to put a watchman on the wall to uh, look out for invading armies or bad guys who wanted to harm uh, the Jewish people. Uh, I see certain ideas and values and standards as always working. I use the analogy that today we have uh, the notion that if you show up at the checkout counter at the grocery store with two gallons of milk 
and say, well, my standard is that these two gallons are really only one gallon. Or you show up with two pounds of meat, and my standard is that I only want to pay for one pound because that's my standard. The next voice you hear would be security. <laughs> uh, but that's the way it is today. We all, there are no universal standards. There's only your personal one. Well, how's that working out? Mm. We are more divided than ever. We have groups now instead of individuals. We are parts of tribes, male, female, transgender, gay, straight, binary, whatever, black, white, Hispanic. Whatever happened to our national motto, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. Now we are out of one many. We're hyphenated Americans. We're divided Americans. So my hope, again, goes back to uh, educating our children and grandchildren in ways that our parents and grandparents educated us. Mm -hmm. And if you don't rescue the next generation, you're not going to have much of a country anymore. Yeah. Well, Cal Thomas, we certainly thank you for your analysis for the past 50 years. And we encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy of A Watchman in the Night. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's on Kindle. Is an audio edition coming as well? They have an audio edition. They picked some actor to do it. I guess they didn't like my voice. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, the book is out today on Tuesday, May the 9th. And uh, we look forward to getting so many responses. I know so many, uh, so many who've gotten preview copies of it have loved it. And I think all of our listeners are really going to enjoy reading your thoughts as you have reported for 50 years. Thank you, America. Virginia. Thank you so much. Right. And we're going to leave it right there for today. But again, if you are interested in getting a copy of Cal Thomas's brand new book, A Watchman in the Night, What I've Seen Over 50 Years Reporting on America, you can get your copy today at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, on your Kindle, uh, and as Mr. Thomas said there's also an audio edition, but we really thank you for joining us on the show today. If you haven't had a chance, be sure to check out our evening show right here in this podcast feed where we bring you the top news of the day. Also, make sure to subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you get your podcasts and help us reach even more listeners by taking just a moment to leave a five-star rating and review. Thanks again for joining us today, and we'll see you right back here at 5 p.m. for our top news edition. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.